You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. Uh, I have the source today, the, in a sense, uh, the wonderful, wonderful honor uh, to be joined, not only with our co-host, Rabbi Tsukalukowski, of course, is the head chaplain at Waymart uh, Prison in Pennsylvania, but also with Rabbi Jacob Weiss, the executive director of Tzedek Association. Now, the name implies, of course, uh, justice and righteousness, and Rabbi Weiss has been in the forefront in an area that we haven't really explored on this podcast. We've talked, of course, about the plight of the incarcerated. We've talked about the difficulties they have in coming back, the difficulties of reentry. We've talked about what happens in terms uh, in front of judges. We've talked with lawyers and we've talked with public defenders. We've talked with uh, guards, COs. Of course, we've talked with chaplains and people that, and mothers and parents, people of collateral damage. But we haven't spoken to people who are fighting another battle, the battle to, to change and to change things with our legislators who are working in Washington and in other places to make sure that the, that the laws can be pushed, can be nudged, can be altered uh, in a way that that actually results in mishpat tzedek. And in that case, this is something where uh, Rabbi Weiss has been on the forefront. So Rabbi Weiss, why don't you uh, tell us uh, about what your activities are in this area and some of the ways that uh, the you can get you can push things forward, uh, even though it seems you know we, we from the news and from we hear from our political megaphones, there's just gridlock. It's so hard to get anything done. Tell us how you've been able to be successful and the steps that you've been taking. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, it's an honor to be part of your podcast, and thank you for having it. It's a very important conversation generally for people to have about criminal justice uh, issues and criminal justice reform issues. So um, as you mentioned, I'm the executive director of Tzedek Association. We are a faith-based national non-for-profit that focuses on criminal justice reform, uh, but we also uh, dabble in uh, religious liberty issues and fight for humanitarian cases throughout the globe, uh, mainly cases such as you know Jewish people that are being detained uh, just because of their faith in other countries. Um, so you know, originally I worked for uh, another organization, a great organization called the Aleph Institute, uh, where I advocated for individual inmates, Jewish inmates throughout the country, uh, federal, state, county, you name it, uh, ranging from religious uh, advocacy issues to humanitarian issues, medical issues, and things like that. But at the same time that I started working for Tzedek in 2011, I got introduced uh, to a very special person, Rabbi Moshe Margaretin, uh, who's a Skver Chassid, actually. Um, I'm a Chabad Chassid. Uh, but we partnered together to try and introduce much-needed uh, criminal justice reform, uh, specifically at that time within the federal system. Um, Rabbi Margaretin had been visiting a friend, a neighbor. Uh, thank God, you know, he had nothing to do with the criminal system and his family. But he had a neighbor who was sitting in prison in Otisville camp. 
and he would uh, periodically go to visit him, just to uh, give him chizuk and keep him company. And um, Rabbi Margaretin tells a story that it was one uh, one visit prior to Pesach that uh, he was visiting his friend, and the table next to him was a, a Yiddish mother that was uh, visiting with uh, her husband, and, and she had brought her kids with, it, with her. And uh, she turns to the kids and she says to them, um, okay, you know, guys, now you can ask the four questions, ask the, the Manashtana that they had learned by heart um, to their father. And they started, you know, repeating the four questions by heart in Yiddish. And she turned to the side, uh, you know, away from where they, you know, their, their, their eyes, they couldn't see, and she started to cry. And uh, Margaretin's heart was just broken by the scene that, uh, you know, she was obviously crying that visiting room in Otisville prison was not the exact place, ideal place for, you know, the four questions that everyone else does at their Seder table. And he walked out of the air when, and decided there and then that he's, got, you know, really wants to try and do something about this crazy system that we have. Uh, and he got a hold eventually uh, with Rabbi Tzvi Bryarski from the Aleph Institute who you know, connected him with me. And we started working on um, originally a bill that uh, didn't make it through. Uh, we only had like a, a couple of weeks to work on it before it really was coming through a vote in the committee. So we decided that we need to write our own bill. And amongst the research that I had done, it seems that all up in that point, 2011, 2012, all you know, prior to that, all criminal justice reform legislations had been led and sponsored and championed by Democrats. And inevitably they failed in Congress because the Republicans wouldn't support it because, you know, they're tough on crime. And so we decided that we have to write our own bill, but it has to be championed by Republicans, by conservatives, Uh, because it was just at that time that there were some voices within the Republican party, within conservatives that, you know, our criminal justice system is out of hand and it's not conservative. You know, conservatives pride themselves that they fight for freedom. And it, it's really antithetical to, to that notion of freedom that America has more people incarcerated uh, per capita and quantitatively more than any other country in the world. And I don't think, and they don't think that we're bigger criminals than everyone else in the world. Um, and also they're obviously very uh, concerned about wasting taxpayer dollars um, and incarcerating people costs a lot of money. Um, And the question is, do we have to be incarcerating all these people and do we have to incarcerate them for all this amount of time when it's us, the taxpayers who are paying the tab for these inmates, um, you know, medical expenses, their food, et cetera. So, we started working on a bill that would introduce into the federal system really much needed rehabilitation programs. Um, you know, working at Aleph, we, you know, we actually go in and visit the prisons and we just see how so many incarcerated individuals waste so much time watching television all day, playing cards. Um, you know, before criminal justice reform was as popular as it is today, um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was talking about criminal justice reform in the, in the 70s and, and probably even earlier than that. The famous Sikh of the Rebbe in the 70s, where you know, the Rebbe said, made the point that 
human beings are put into this world by God. And no one is here by accident. Every single person is here because they have a purpose. And, and that actually is the very reason why they're here is to fulfill that purpose. And so when you take somebody and you warehouse them for X number of years, for 10, 20 years, and you say that for this amount of time, you cannot do anything productive for society, that's actually the most inhumane thing you can do to somebody because it's defying their very humanity and their very purpose. And the Rebbe encouraged then already that we should um, implement more good time credit and programming so that they can be productive in prison. But besides that, it's you know, evidence-based proven that when inmates uh, participate in recidivism reduction programs, rehabilitation programs, job training, education, it reduces their risk of reoffending, known as recidivating. So it's in society's best interest to establish those types of programs because it brings less crime. 60% of people in prison recidivate. They go back eventually to prison for committing either the same crimes or new crimes. Uh, and so that kind of proves that this system is not working. So this program, this uh, bill that we worked on established recidivism reduction programs, job training, education. It established uh, partnerships with non-for-profits, including faith-based organizations like ours that can go in and do programs at no cost uh, with, the, with the inmate population. Um, and inmates who successfully participate in these programs earn early credits to early home confinement. So we, we got that bill introduced in 2012. We drafted the bill. We hired lobbyists. We drafted the bill. Um, we found co-sponsors, Republicans and Democrats. Um, but, you know, not to bore you, but for one reason or another, the politics of, of Washington, you know, we thought, get the Republicans on board, which we did. And the Democrats will, you know, be so excited. Sure, of course they support this. But, you know, we were introduced to, you know, the way it works over there on the Hill is that, uh, you know, they want everything. And, it's, it, you know, yes, of course, we support this. But if you're going to do this, then we also want drug substitute reform. And we want you to, to, you know, affect mandatory minimums and all that. So that really held up the bill a few years. Uh, but eventually, um, President Trump became president. And Jared Kushner, uh, who we had met, uh, two years uh, before the Trump, even, President Trump even announced his presidency, and he donated money to the, our lobbyists uh, because he cared so much about the issue. He was already from the beginning um, very committed to helping get this bill passed uh, and eventually became known as the First Step Act um, and indeed was signed into law um, in uh, December of 2018 uh, by President Trump. Uh, it won tremendous bipartisan support uh, overwhelmingly in, co in, in Congress, both in the House um, and the Senate. Um, and like I said, the bill establishes um, programs for inmates to participate and gets them out to home confinement earlier. Uh, there's also a few compassionate release uh, provisions in it, uh, such as that elderly inmates who are 60 years old and older who've served two thirds of their sentence, uh, they're nonviolent. Uh, they're able to get early home confinement. Um, other changes to making compassionate release uh, more expansive than it was until then. Uh, and then there is indeed a whole section on sentencing reform, 
for nonviolent uh, drug offenses. Uh, so we were very proud to have been the ones to draft to have drafted that bill, held the bill's hand all the years. Um, and during those two years, uh, President Trump's presidency, um, before the bill was passed, uh, we were very instrumental in getting the support from Congress. We reached out to rabbis, uh, leaders, Chabad Shluchim, in all 50 states. We made uh, dozens and dozens of meetings and phone calls in D.C., um, and in phone calls um, with, um, you know, because you know, the, these members of Congress, it matters to them what their constituents think, and certainly rabbis who are leaders of their constituents. Um, so we use that as leverage uh, to be able to get the message to these members of Congress that their constituents uh, support this legislation and want them to support it. So that helped a lot. Um, and there many other efforts. And indeed, um, in 2019, the president of Tzedek, Rabbi Margaretin, was honored by the first lady and by the president uh, with the lighting of the menorah at the White House Hanukkah party in recognition of uh, our efforts. Uh, reform is unique uh, in that it, it does get bipartisan support. Um, and I think the reason for that is because we've been able to, you know, tap into the belief systems of both parties and explain to them why this fits with, you know, their belief. Obviously, Democrats, um, you know, they've always supported criminal justice reform. um, And especially the, the, you know, based on the fact that, um, you know, 50% of people in prison are people of color. um, And there are a lot of examples of how our our justice system is prejudiced against um, black and brown people. Uh, in the country. And by the way, it's something that, you know, Orthodox Jews can relate to those minorities, um, just as it can be argued that that a Black person um, cannot get a, a fair trial uh, because of the color of his skin. Um, an Orthodox Jew uh, who dresses and looks like an Orthodox Jew um, has a much, much smaller chance of winning in a court than um, than someone else who, you know, doesn't look the way he does. Uh, and we've seen that time and time again. Um, so, you know, going back to the Democrats, that's something that's obviously, you know, garnered their support. And I already mentioned earlier the things that, you know, we've been able to explain to Republicans why, you know, this is something that they should support because they're the fighters of freedom. This is, you know, pe- keeping people on home confinement is obviously much, much cheaper than keeping them in prison uh, because when sure. they're in home confinement, they have to pay for their own medical, their own food, their own clothing, their own room and board. Um, and and whereas in prison, we pay for that. In fact, you know, one thing that we push very strongly is a lot of reforms that pertain to elderly inmates. Um, the inspector general has done reports that we're spending $2 billion a year on the medical costs of inmates who are 55 years old and older. And they have the lowest risk of recidivism uh, because of their age. So in, what it turns out is that we're spending the most amount of money to house the group of, of inmates who are uh, the least risk to society. So it just doesn't make sense. And, and so through those kind of arguments, we've been able to also get Republicans on board with our legislations. You, you, know, you said before, Rabbi Weiss, that seven years, right, from 2011 to 2018, you know, some people took on, they're going to finish us. But what you did was, I think, a lot more difficult than going through the uh, 3,000 odd pages of Shas. You had to really go through sugya by sugya in order to, to make this work. 
Now, I, I'd assume you say, of course, that there was an appeal to African-American uh, legislators and, and the African-American cause. I would assume that you had to connect with African-American activists in this way, too. And I'm sure this it, it couldn't just yes. be right. And, yeah, we've partnered and, and, with, with many of these um, organizations. In fact, I'm working now on a project that Tzedek is partnering with the NAACP. Um, actually, a very interesting effort, if you're interested in hearing. But um, uh, yeah, definitely, 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 there's a lot of a lot of organizations from the ACLU, um, you know, to the Sentencing Project to FAM um, that we've partnered with uh, that you know are more inclined towards the left. Uh, but obviously, there's actually a lot of conservative organizations such as the American Conservative Un- Union, Right on Crime. Um, uh, R Street, there. These are right organizations that we uh, partner with as well that are very supportive of religious reform. So yeah, since no, look, I mean, the, you know, you're yeshiva man. Obviously, you know, you, although you speak very eloquently, and I'm sure that you can make your case in front of any sort of, uh, not just a parochial audience. Uh, how long did it take you to really like roll up your sleeves and learn about this labyrinth of? Of, of lawmaking and how to get things done. Did you have to have a learning arc? Did you have to have, was there someone to guide you or did you have to sort of like just jump in the water and start swimming? Yeah, I, probably the latter. Um, politics has always been like an interesting thing, and my, my form of entertainment, uh, which helps a lot because I don't take it very seriously. A lot of people, you know, get all heated up about Trump and Biden and this one and that one. And, you know, I, I don't take it so personally. I don't think we matter as much. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I, I enjoy it. Um, so, you know, a lot of it just comes a little bit somewhat naturally. But, um, but yeah, you, obviously, like anything in life, you learn uh, with, you know, with your experience. Um, you know, as the way a bill works is the bill has to normally, there are exceptions, there's a lot of different rules. You could pass committees, but normally... A bill has to get introduced. Once it gets, in, it could be introduced by one one member, uh, both on the House and the Senate. It has to be introduced each two separate bills. So let's deal with the let's deal with the House first, right? So you have a, a congressman or congresswoman. They have to introduce the the bill. Sometimes they introduce it by themselves. Sometimes they introduce it with others. Um, and then you know, at any point before it gets passed, people uh, members can be added on as co sponsors. Um, but there's usually one member who's the main sponsor. And then sometimes you have, like I said, original co-sponsors and then co-sponsors that got added on later on. The bill then has to be passed, marked up, passed out. Of, it's called be marked up out of the committee. Most of our bill committee that's suited for that particular bill. Uh, so if it's a bill that has to do with giving money to, to Israel, it's going to go through you know foreign affairs. If it's about um, you know, national security is going to go through, you know, every, everything has its committee. Our bills go through the judiciary committee. So it's got to be brought, the, the committee, every committee has a chairman. The chairman decides, is the sole decider of which bills get brought up to that committee and which don't. If the, if, if the chairman decides to bring it up for a vote, it goes for a vote and it wins, it has to win by majority. Once it gets uh, passed out of the committee, it then is able to go to the floor um, again, and that's, of course, solely up to the Speaker of the House, whoever the Speaker of the House is at that time, has the sole discretion of which bills get brought up to uh, the floor, and then it gets passed out of the House. The Senate is the same process. It gets introduced by a senator, has to be passed out of the committee, 
uh, and then gets brought, brought to the Senate uh, and gets passed out of the Senate. It doesn't matter who goes first, the House or the Senate. Uh, it makes no, no difference. Uh, which, okay, my my, po- my, my, my point was not really to was to do seventh grade civics again. Sorry. My point was no, 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 no. It was good because you you enlightened me, but it was really building on the question. You know, the question really is: Wow, you needed to really figure out who's going to present the bill, who are going to be your sponsors. Yes. You also needed to know how to whisper in the ear of the head of the Judiciary Committee. I mean, there's yes. so many different uh, key people. It's yes. not just the Nazi of the Sanhedrin. There seems to be and 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 what gave you know, how were you able to whisper in their ears properly? How were you able to get, you know, the, the memo or uh, the email to that person properly or the meeting, the coffee meeting where you were able or the, or, or the uh, elevator pitch to be able to, uh, to figure out, right? This is a, uh, it isn't just writing things up in a Kishrindika way. You also need the art of figuring out who to coddle and who to speak to and who to whisper to, yeah. right? So, yeah. So first of all, obviously, with time, you create relationships. Um, and but the mainly to answer your question is that we hire lobbyists. And, you know, the lobbyists obviously have taught me a great deal of how the system works and what's the best way to get a bill passed. And we uh, use them, of course, also to open the doors for us um, and, uh, you know, to, to try to find different ways um, to leverage and to influence the system um, to be able to get our our priorities, our bills passed into law. So, look, you know, we 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 have a, a the right thing. Who are some of the heroes that you'd like to maybe mention for the start? Besides President Trump and Jared Kushner, were there any specific um, senators who or congressmen that you felt that you felt really went to bat for you, and that you're still uh, maybe perhaps zeroing in on now for further reforms that you plan on trying to introduce? Yeah, you know, Mike Lee from Utah um, has been a great champion. Uh, we saw by the First Step Act how when it was got to the floor, he was running from one senator to the other senator, really lobbying and whipping the bill. Um, you know, so people like him have been uh, very, very good partners um, the current chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, Senator Durbin, his house, is, his staff has been extremely responsive. Just had a call with them today. Um, just from you know, Illinois, Dick Durbin from Illinois. From Illinois. Yes. Yeah. So what's, what's, what's interesting is, and again, this, this, uh, building to another little question, is that you, there are a few Jewish senators. Doesn't seem like they've necessarily been your great allies, right, on this case. And again, they've they've done other positive things for Jews in general and for perhaps social justice issues, but it hasn't. You haven't necessarily said, "I'm a Jew. I'm going to call another Jew." Right? It's it, it's it's really it's really gone beyond that, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm very proud to you know always start off most of my calls with staff explaining to them why we fight for what we fight in accordance with the values of Judaism, why the Jewish community supports uh, criminal justice reform and how it fits with our values and really, in fact, fits with the values of other faiths. But, you know, I'm so I definitely don't shy away from it. Obviously, when you, you know, I look like a rabbi, you know, so um, I certainly make that connection to them. But no, we don't just, you know, specifically reach out to Jewish members, though, you know, we have a relationship with Senator Schumer's office, for example, um, and just, you know, spoke with him direct last week uh, on a Zoom. Um, and his his staff is responsive as well on the issues that we fight for, whether it's criminal justice reform or mostly lately we've been in touch with his office 
on humanitarian uh, cases, uh, whether it's in Afghanistan that we're working on, a case in Yemen, um, you know, those kind of things. Right. And I know he has trumpeted a little bit his, his connection to the... Rabbi Weiss, you mentioned Afghanistan. Can you talk a little bit more about... I know uh, that your organization is doing a lot there and maybe uh, elaborate on that a bit. Um, thank you. Yeah. Um, so we were, we were reached out the day, the day after the Taliban took over Kabul. Um, we were reached out if we could help save the last remaining um, Jew in Afghanistan, a guy by the name of Zebulon Simantov. Um, and, you know, from that, things kind of spiraled and we started getting involved with helping lots of other people, other, you know, Muslims uh, and other religious minorities, Christians and so on that are stuck in the country, mostly women and children, the women especially are at risk. And so far we've helped, um, you know, a few hundred people get out of Afghanistan to safety, including this uh, Zebulon Simantov. We successfully got him out. Uh, but Rabbi Margareta has really taken the lead on that. Um, you know, his father, his grandfather were Holocaust survivors. And, you know, knowing the, the righteous Gentiles that helped save so many Yidin during the Holocaust, he felt an obligation for us to be there for the Afghanistans at their time of need. Um, and so we've helped uh, female soccer players get out. We're right now trying to help get out female, you know, volleyball players. We've been involved in getting out female prosecutors and judges um, and activists, uh, people who were very helpful in the war against terror. In fact, uh, Congressman Don Bacon, uh, the representative from Nebraska, uh, talked about Sadek and Rabbi Margaretin today on the floor of the House of Representatives uh, in recognition of our work uh, in Afghanistan. It's, it's really incredible. Uh, and uh, Hashem. Yes, 100%. Here you can't say that you were just doing it Derek Agav. It's uh, obviously, like you say, uh, it's, it's something that needs to be applauded is is have you had a connection obviously uh you know when you start in 2011 uh joe biden was still the uh, vice president at that time do you have a connection with uh, president biden not directly never had a connection with directly no but we have connections with uh, some of the people in the white house staff yeah i've had a conversation recently with the white house council on an issue that we're fighting for but not directly <laughs> with him Mm -hmm. Because again, without making turning this into a political uh... no, everyone, whether you're Republican or Democrats, um, everyone's very sensitive to the fact that there are Afghanistan that are that are at risk, a high risk, um, and that they need to be saved. And no, we've you know, no matter what side of the the political spectrum you're on, they support the work that we're doing and very interested in it. Mm -hmm. um, Do you work with some of these other organizations? I know. Glenn Beck is doing a lot to work with the uh, with help, saving people in Afghanistan, and and uh, he's, reach, he's reached out to Rabbi Margaret and he wants to get an interview actually, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, yeah, yeah, we are working with a lot of the other organizations, not Glenn Beck specifically, but some of the other organizations on the Afghan effort. Yes, you know, one of the things, uh, Rabbi, that besides all the good work that is happening you know the the incredible passing of the of the bill and that solace and the shows that's going on i think another reason why we need to uh emphasize what 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 
your association is doing is because it really destroys the canard, uh, the lie that you know we can't work together uh, with African American organizations or organizations of, uh, of, of of Arab and Muslim organizations. Um, you know, there's a um, an idea that people have that you know that we aren't working in tandem. I mean, your organization, although you don't necessarily represent um, any of uh, specifically um, you know, any of the, the, the major parties of, of orthodoxy, reform, conservative, but it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a raya brura of how, as you say, Jewish values can, can reach across and, and, and not only create a Kiddush Hashem, but show that it isn't what people are saying. You know, in, in, in terms of uh, the polarization, the inability uh, of identity of identity politics, uh, politics uh, blinding us uh, to the possibilities. W- well, would I would encourage agree? you to listen to Congressman Bacon's three minute speech today on the House floor, because, you know, that was the underlining message uh, that, you know, this country is founded on the principle of e pluribus unum and of many one. Uh, it's on our on our on our. Uh, cu- currency it's on it's on the seal of the of the of the congress um and you know we're seeing so much division today and he that's the point that he brought out that here you have uh in or, you know orthodox rabbis that are working day and night to save muslims um and and other people of other faiths uh and it really should serve as an example to the rest of the country that we need to you know come together for the greater good um, and making this world a better place, uh, which is what we do. I know that there are, as you say, very terrible issues still to deal with. So what are some of the frontiers that you are pushing? Um, and obviously, you know, the success that you had in the past uh, gives you confidence that you can perhaps be successful in some new things in the future. So what are, what, what are the, some of the things that you're emphasizing now? Well, First of all, since so since the the bill was passed, um, we actually been very involved with trying to expand uh, this elderly home detention pilot program. Um, there's now a bill uh, called the COVID nineteen Safer Detention Act uh, that we helped um, draft S three twelve on the Senate, HR three six six nine on the House. Uh, that's going to join um, a, a larger package. Um, so we've been working very very strong on that. Uh, that's going to help, like I said, nonviolent elderly inmates. Um, another thing that's, I think, very interesting. So related to that bill, when COVID hit, so Congress started working on a stimulus package uh, called the CARES Act. Um, Robbie Margaretin calls me up one Friday and he says, you know, this CARES Act bill is a tremendous opportunity for us to get inmates out of prison earlier because, you know, they're at you know, tremendous danger, really, that they're very vulnerable to COVID because they're in a closed environment. Uh, And practically in prison, you cannot practice social distancing where they eat together, shower together, sleep together. It's just impossible. So, you know, and I'm on, like I said earlier, I'm on all these conference calls every single month with all of these advocacy organizations. And I can tell you that up until that point, nobody was talking about that idea. Instead, they were focused on the, the uh, on what was going on in the prisons. They weren't getting visitations. They weren't getting, um, you know, some of the basic things like soap and shampoo and all those kind of things. Uh, but nobody was talking about this idea. So we got an emergency conference call with our lobbyists 
Um, and we started working on it right away. Um, and we got through actually Senator Durbin's office, even no one in Congress was thinking of it. They were, Durbin was, he's like one of the biggest, you know, champions for criminal justice issues. And he was focused on saving the airlines. Um, and we proposed this and we got into the, the CARES Act, a provision that um, inmates who are vulnerable to COVID can get home confinement. And since then, over 7,000 inmates throughout the country are, are, got received home confinement under the CARES Act, many of which are from our community. In fact, um, Otisville lost their minion. Today, Otisville Camp has no minion because of this CARES Act home detention prime, uh, program. It's the first minion that uh, we've destroyed that uh, we're actually very <laughs> proud of. Um, wasn't there, uh, Rabbi Weiss, wasn't there also... Actually, so there's a law that, that there's a statute that some people are not allowed to receive more than six more than six months home confinement so only up to six months before their release date are they able to get home detention what this provision the cares act did was that it it rescinded that and expanded it where there is no limit there are people now that are in home confinement who have seven years left eight years nine years left to their sentence and they're sitting on they're they're on home confinement already now for a year and a half um, thanks to that bill. So no question about it that we've helped save lives uh, with that program. Um, in addition to that, we were very involved in a number of commutations. Um, the two cases that uh, were, you know, we were extremely involved in that pivotal and helping to make happen was um, Shalom Weiss and um, Ellie Weinstein. We were also very involved in, a, in uh, somebody by the name of Ronan Nachmani, whose wife was dying from cancer. And unfortunately, a few months ago, she passed away, but he is now reunited with his kids. So those are some commutations. We've also been working on commutations reforms. One of the things that we're working on now is trying to get the uh, pardon attorney out of the DOJ, Department of Justice, because we're, we argue, as many others do, that it's a conflict of interest, that these are prosecutors who fought to keep these people in prison. And the the parenthood should not be in, in the place of the people that, you know, put them in prison. They're not going to actually be, uh, you know, the right voices uh, to argue that they should get early, you know, early release uh, and commutations of sentence. So we're, we're trying to advocate now to, to get it out of the DOJ and instead create an outside commission, a committee of diverse individuals, formerly incarcerated people, uh, former judges, uh, defense attorneys, also prosecutors, you know, where the, the president can get uh, a wider array of voices in, in this advice. Um, other things we're working on now is um, a, a alternative sentencing to incarceration. Um, there's many other ways to be able to get justice for people that have done things wrong uh, that doesn't have to be prison. Um, and, you know, there used to be 60% of cases were alternatives to, to incarceration, whether it's probation or, or you know, community work. Um, now it's like 3%. Um, we also want to, you know, create other, other programs um, to re other sentencing reforms uh, as it pertains to first-time nonviolent offenders, uh, especially for financial crimes. Um, like, we, like I argued earlier, um, you know, it just, our sentencing system is crazy. Uh, we've become addicted to these sentences and people have, you know, come to the belief that prison is the answer to all of our problems. And it simply isn't. 
the fact that crime is so high, the recidivism is so high. You look at other countries that don't have such high sentences that we have. They have lower crime rates than we have, lower recidivism. There are other ways to do things other than just giving people very, very long sentences that strip them away from their families, destroy the families, put the, their families in prison, um, and really just keep people in an environment where they just become you know, better criminals. Um, we also want to encourage more um, family hardship consideration at sentencing, which currently does not take place. We want to take a look at um, a revival of federal parole. Um, there's a bill that we support called the Second Look Act, where as a current, in our current justice system, once a judge sentences somebody, there is no point at, at a later date um, where they can reconsider their sentence. Um, and there are many, many, many instances where judges 10 years later say, you know, I'd really like to resentence this person because the circumstances have changed and the person has changed. You know, take, for example, Shalom Weiss, uh, who received the clemency from President Trump, you know, at the time of his sentencing, he owed hundreds of millions of dollars to restitution. And eventually all that restitution was paid back. So this was a guy who was sitting in prison for 835 years, obviously life in prison for a crime where he owed no money to any victim. Restitution had been paid in full. So, you know, there are many, many other kinds of examples where there should be an opportunity for a judge to take a second look at, at, a, at a case and, and maybe give the person a different type of sentence. Um, we want to change, revise the United States sentencing guidelines. Um, they are, they're outdated, they're, they're, antico- they're, they're, they're antiques, and it just doesn't make any sense that we're still going on the you know, numbers that were, that were created many, many years ago. A million dollars today is not to say, doesn't mean the same like it did in the 80s and the 90s when the guidelines were created. We also want and, to- and we- and we know that those, as we've heard on this program many times, although you might have a judge who's somewhat sympathetic, he says that his uh, his hands are tied because he exactly. has to follow something. Exactly. I, exactly. One, one of the other one of the other issues that I know you're involved in through our mutual friends is something that we've spoken about in this program, which is that many uh, people who find themselves arrested and then incarcerated and brought uh, into the prison system will, uh, because of their insistence of their innocence, end up getting a very harsh and terrible sentence because they decided to go to trial and didn't take a plea. Because, And we've heard this over and over again. And I know this is something which I assume uh, resonates with Republicans and Democrats, yes. where you have people, where you have people who are uh, who, who have to be punished because they are trying to have their constitutional right to be tried by a jury of their peers, and yet every single person knows, and we've heard this down the line from every person who's been on this program, that it's a, a dover borer that if you decide that you want to push for sentencing, that you are going to get a tougher. Situation: The judge is going to be tougher on you, and what you're eventually going to get if you are found guilty is going to be much worse than anything else. So I know this is something that you guys are that that uh, Tzedek is uh, is on the forefront as well. Can you just speak in our rem- final moments here about what you're doing for this? And, and, and another, just a quick point about that is that the uh, the conviction rate in the federal system is is well over ninety percent, which is uh, and it's mostly because people just make pleas even i think some of these pleas might not even be founded which are they're really not supposed to accept 
Yeah, so. that's exactly right, Rebbe Tzvik. I mean, um, people, um, only, th- only 3% of cases actually go to trial. 97% of cases, um, we take a plea deal. And we believe that that's just not what our founding fathers had in mind. And 97% of cases do not go before a jury of, of our peers. Um, and it's just gone out of hand. Um, and yes, there is what's, what's now called the, the trial penalty, where people are in essence penalized, they're punished for going to trial, um, where if they, if they do decide to go to trial, um, then the judge and the prosecutor sometimes openly in court say that we're slapping on another 5, 10, 20 years to the sentence simply because you exercised your constitutional right to go to a trial. Had the framemakers not decided that going to a trial was a constitutional right, that'd be one thing. But it's a constitutional right to go to a trial. And how could you penalize someone for extra time going to prison because they exercised that right? It's just wrong. And so we actually put together a letter that was signed by dozens of members of Congress, completely bipartisan, half were Democrats, half were Republicans, who called on uh, the president to and the partner, sorry, the partner attorney to create a, uh, a special category of cases that they should consider for clemency that fall under uh, trial penalty abuse, um, and as well that you know there, there needs to be legislation that addresses addresses this, and also the judges in the court system should address this this issue because it's just an absolute travesty of justice that this is what's going on today. What we've heard, going is a back that we have heard from the insiders is that the system is so overwhelmed that there aren't enough judges, there aren't enough, there isn't enough room because of the uh, plethora of, of 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 arrests and people waiting that. It's really this convenient aspect. Nobody wants to waste the time, so to speak, because there isn't enough courtroom. There isn't enough. There is enough space. Yeah. There's a lot of those that, factors that are just really bad reasons uh, to to divorce fam- people from their families and put them in prison, uh, which is you know why we are working so hard to try and, and change the system. Uh, you know, one of the things that people go through is also um, you know that their records follow them. And that makes it so difficult for them to succeed, which is why we're also sure. we're also trying to pass a bill um, that brings in more a, a, an option for expungement in the federal system, where people can go to a judge instead of having to, you know, go to a, a president to get a pardon, which is so hard and difficult. Um, they can go to a judge to get expungement. Part of that bill, which is what we're actually partnering with the NAACP that I mentioned earlier, is and not not many people know this, but people with felonies are actually discriminated against in the banks because of their felony records from opening up simple checking accounts, even if the offense had absolutely nothing to do with financial crimes and nothing to do with that bank. People who had existing accounts get closed. People try to open up new checking accounts um, are, are, are denied. And it's happening all over the system. And how can you expect somebody to succeed in today's day and age if they don't have a simple banking account? I mean, a lot of business, uh, you know, businesses will want to pay them direct payments, to the direct pay to their bank account. If they don't have an account, they just can't get a job. And how do you expect them not to land back in prison? So the NAACP is joining us uh, with that. We're actually having a very big call with J.P. Morgan Chase, with senior executives there. We're trying to partner with them um, on that issue. 
Um, and by the way, another thing that we're trying to push is we want to make a requirement for judges and all DOJ officials, prosecutors, that they have to visit a prison every few years. We want them to see where they're sending people to. If you're going to sentence someone to, to years in, 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 in prison, then you should go and have to see with your own eyes. Then when you walk out, if you you know, decide to continue doing that, that's your prerogative, but you should at least see what you're doing. And, and, and another thing we're trying to do is changing this, this, this thing that right now prosecutors are often rated by how many uh, people they incarcerate and by how many years they incarcerated people for under their belt. We want to pass a law that, that uh, forbids the Department of Justice by rating prosecutors on how many years they imprison people. That's like, you know, giving bonuses to cops by how many tickets they give out. You know, we want to we want to encourage prosecutors to do justice, not to put people behind prison, behind bars. And, and that rating is what what it helps them in terms of uh, it's increased salaries. It actually yeah. gives them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing that I heard from one of our associates uh, who helps us with the program is that because of this um, trial penalty, you sometimes have a situation where the masterminds of a fraud or something like that uh, end up getting a very light sentence. And some of the underlings who were just even unaware, but because either they were not offered the deal or because they, they felt they were innocent, they end up serving longer than the than the than the, the the masters who commanded them and they didn't even understand it, so yeah. it, it, it it becomes such a as we say in, in, in that we that we worked on for uh, commutation together with Aleph Institute they really took the lead on that case but we were supportive and helped out with it. Uh, her name was Daniela Gozes Wagner. Uh, she received a commutation from President Trump. She was a great example of that. Um, where you know the the main culprits of this of this of the of the offense walked away with sweet deals she decided to go and she was just a secretary literally just a secretary barely knew what she was doing and she got a 20 year sentence simply because she went to trial when the main masterminds walked away with like two years it was crazy and the president recognized that and commuted her sentence well you know i know that um one of the things that not only uh, you but I think, you know, when we when we speak about, you know, the legacy of President Trump, this should this should have been we should have heard more about this. I'm not a political person about who should win or not. But when we talk about some of the accomplishments of what that administration was able to do, I'm surprised that we didn't hear more about that. And um, and I think that would have been, uh, as as the senator pointed out from Nebraska, that would have been the type of things that that unify and the type of uh, working together that can be a model uh, for for many many more positive things in the future. Aleivatzlach, Rabbi, thank you so much. Uh, for being with us. I know that it, it, to take to, it, just from this conversation, we can see how how incredibly busy you are. And of course, we, we wish you all the best. Rabbi Shalom should guide your hands. Besecho, besecho tov. So that's it, my friends. Thank you again. We shall hopefully be back soon with another episode of To Stir With Love. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.